and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? How are we going to fund this FOSS thing that we all love talking about? That is what we will be talking about today. Before we introduce our two illustrious and noble guests, I want to make sure that you know who the other voices are on this podcast. So this is Richard Litauer, your host, and Justin Dorfman is also a host. Hello, Justin. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Richard? Doing good. Doing good. Always am. And Ben Nichols, how are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. Excellent. I'm actually not always great, but I am today because we have two excellent guests. We have Aluminium Bowie and Mandy Grover. Aluminium Bowie told me that is how he pronounced his name. I'm pretty sure most of you may know him as Dwayne O'Brien who I believe has been on this podcast before. Dwayne and Mandy are joining us today from Indeed, where they're joining us to talk about the FOSS Fund. They have recently released an awesome FOSS Fund report, and I can't wait to get into that. Just so you know who they are, Mandy Grover, and this was written by Dwayne O'Brien, by the way, so we'll see how this goes. Mandy Grover helps technical leaders at Indeed communicate effectively. She's a technical content architect and manages a team within the technical content organization. She loves bringing orderly writing out of the idea cloud and developing frameworks for producing and consuming content at scale. In her free time, she collects vintage clown art and works as a consulting directive. She lives in Austin, Texas, and she wrote this about Dwayne. Dwayne leads the vision for open source. And indeed, he manages the people, policies, and ideas to grow open source participation within the company. He loves telling the story of open source through collaboration and conversation. I can back this up. This is true. Dwayne is a force of chaotic good. That is, wow, strong wording. Using his high stats in intelligence and charisma to advocate for the open source community. If you encounter him in forested areas, he will share his fire, drink, and philosophy. I can see why Dwayne said you can read these verbatim. That was excellent and a very good introduction. Dwayne, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. I want to issue a slight correction. Uh, the end of Mandy's bio says, uh, indicates that she is a consulting detective Thank in, her, in her spare time. And the process for writing these bios is, I think, indicative of what it is like to work together with us as writers. Mandy, do you think that is accurate? I do. In choosing to write each other's bios, we approached it as both a writing exercise, but it also was a way to express our deep understanding of how we work together and the writing partnership that we've been building. I'm so glad that both of you took the opportunity to do that. That was in no way precipitated by me. That was something they did just authentically and together. Mandy and Dwayne, you have written other stuff together. There is recently announced and or published, whatever you want to call it, put on the internet and tweeted, the FOSS Fund Report. Mandy, can you talk a bit about what this is? Yeah, I'd love to. This is basically a collection of the findings of the last three years of Dwayne's work at Indeed with a boss contributor fund. And basically that is a way that Indeed is democratizing the funding of the open source community from Indeed as a company. It's the framework, it's the day-to-day operation, it's the philosophy, the pillars And as you'll see in the report, it's a roadmap, it's a blueprint, a living blueprint, really, of how we've done this and how you too can do this. 
The full title of the report is Investing in Open Source, the POS Contributor Fund. And we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that we developed the report in collaboration with O'Reilly Media. I like to use the word published because it's published. There will be at some point hard copy books. Justin, I don't know if that's one of the questions you brought to the conversation. Oh my God, you read my mind. (laughs) We will do hard copy books at some point. But yes, investing in open source, the POS Contributor Fund. I want it signed and I'm going to hang one on my wall and then have one by my, it's like a pocketbook. They could frame books now. You could just frame it, but somewhere you can read it would be better. I got the impression that this is like basically Dwayne's brain put down on paper. Now, Dwayne has a lot of different stuff going on. So he does work at Indeed at the open source program office there. But the FOSS Contributor Fund is something different. Dwayne, can you talk about how the FOSS Contributor Fund started and what it is? The FOSS Contributors Fund started as an email to my boss in 2018 as we were looking for a way to contribute to open source sustainability at Indeed. We had an item in our budget to support one particular open source project, and that item wound up in our budget because a senior leader advocated for us to support that project. We wanted to open up that ability, that avenue for advocacy to as much of a date as possible. And so we landed on the the pattern for the FOSS Contributor Fund. Anyone can nominate a project they think we should support. Anyone who contributes to open source gets to vote on which of those projects receive support. And then we make a one-time cash investment in that project of $10,000. It's no strings attached. We don't try to get into the business of telling what projects should do or shouldn't do with the money. We just look for ways to try to give enough money that they can do something interesting with it. And then we step back. I was really excited to see the publication of what is a very kind of practical guide. And I understand that it wasn't published long ago, but I was just wondering, what have you seen as the response? Have you had other organizations reaching out to you to get a little bit of support? Have you, yeah, what has the immediate response been? Because as much as I feel like we might be a little bit early doors. I can appreciate that there will be many people looking to implement something similar in their organization. I'm just kind of wondering how those conversations are already going and what you're talking about. I really appreciate that you've honed in that this is a practical guide. So I'm going to throw some of this question to Mandy at the end here. Because you have Mandy to thank for it being a practical guide and something that you can use as a reference for how to do this. But We've had a number of conversations over the years with organizations who've been interested in starting their own FOSS contributor funds. There's one currently running at Microsoft at Salesforce and at Johns Hopkins University. And there were other organizations that have been interested in starting one. And they've had some conversations with us about how did you sell this up or how did you get budget and sort of some exploratory conversations. When the report was first released, there was a lot of initial love from people who were glad to see it out, but hadn't quite read it yet. So I think we're still getting to the point that people have read the report, they've sort of internalized it, and they're starting to come back with questions. So I'm not sure what we'll see happen in 2022, but I'm hopeful that we've provided a guide that people can take and use as a reference to implement FOSS funds at their organization. And Mandy, I wonder if you want to speak a little bit to how it's structured. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how deep to dive in the early days of figuring out how to structure this amount of information. I mean, we're talking about three solid years of learning experiences. And so then how to put that into a form that was helpful to people who maybe wanted to learn about what we did, but 
maybe also wanted something more than just information. Wanted, like we were talking about a blueprint or a framework or a guide. And so one of the things that we talked about very early on was the goal and the tone of the report being, yes, we want to talk about the experiences that we went through and the things that happened in Indeed. But we also compared it a little bit to like a, um, you could skip around. It's a choose your own adventure type of thing, because maybe you just want to know how to format the email to the funding decision makers at your organization. Well, you can kind of skip around to that aspect of the blueprint, or maybe you want to read about some challenges that indeed face at a certain phase of implementation where you can skip around to that. So we were very clear that we wanted to make it consumable from multiple perspectives. You can just learn, you can use it to implement, and you can also use it to customize to your own situation and even improve upon. So we really wanted those multiple perspectives in there. Did you ever think this would become the blueprint? And what I mean by that is we've had two other individuals on our podcast. We had Emma Irwin and Chad Whitaker from Century or Emma Irwin from Microsoft. And basically their whole entire time they were talking to us was just how they implemented the FOSS Contributor Fund. How does Indeed see this? Is this like a huge win or is it just like a eh, whatever? Gosh, that's tough. I cannot honestly say at the beginning that we set out to establish a blueprint that other people would be able to take and adopt. What we started out with was an idea that we wanted to try. The more that we continued to run the FOSS Fund, the more it felt like a pattern that would be useful to other people. And certainly the hope is in putting the information out there is that other people would see the pattern, understand what we were trying to do, adopt it in their own organizations. It's been really awesome to see that take root in organizations. Century's example, I think is super interesting and like the work that Chad is doing. You go into that story. I think it's really interesting for those who don't know about it, how the Century thing came about. Sure. And we talk about this as an example in the report, but the Century is a product that is used at Indeed. There are people at Indeed who really advocated for Century and, and liked Century. At the time, Sentry was using an open source license. They've since used a business source license, which is not always I approve. But they were eligible for FOSS Fund, even if it wasn't the kind of project that we'd envisioned. We had envisioned projects that were primarily owned by a couple of maintainers or run by a couple of people. Sentry was a fully open source project backed by venture capital. And so it would get nominated. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is trust the voting process. So it would get nominated. We would say, trust the voting process. Sentry is well-loved, but it's not the kind of thing that we're looking for. And when it won nomination, we kind of had a bit of a dilemma because I was ultimately the decision maker and I didn't want to put my thumb on the scale because I felt like that would subvert the whole election democratization process. So instead we reached out to Sentry and said, hey, do you, what do you want to do with this? And after some back and forth, they agreed to pass it on to some of their dependencies and then committed to giving other money to dependencies. That took some time to come to fruition, but earlier this year, they gave something like $150,000 down to open source dependencies or maintainers that were important to them. So even though it started from a place that we didn't anticipate that outcome, it still created this effect where the organization passed money on down to, to their maintainers. You know, it's a good thing I asked you that question because I was thinking outside of looking in, I was like, Dwayne has to know that it has a BSL license. Like, why would they even... That's what you're trying to get at is 
this is what the most important part of the FOSS contributor fund is democracy. You have to trust the voting process and look what has come from it. Look at this fruit from this tree you planted. And I think that is just, especially with Chad Whitaker, for those who don't know, who is a co-founder of SustainOSS and just him in that position and you hooking up and making that happen. It was just like the coolest thing I've heard in a while in terms of open source sustainability. Mandy had this insight really early after maybe the first full working draft of this about people and about centering people in the narrative and about involving people. And this whole process that we're talking about, I think really calls out sort of her own observation there. Mandy, I wonder if you want to go into that. I'm going to always take the conversation back to doing a nice writing partnership. It's built on basically telling each other stories and then repeating those stories back to each other. And from that, eventually, it's terribly messy at first, of course, but that's wonderful, actually, in the writing process. But from that, eventually, you get this eureka moment, this synthesis of something. And Dwayne had been telling me stories from different angles of his vision and leadership and experiences through working on the FOSS Contributor Fund. And I had been telling him stories of things similarly of my observations. And the thread, the revelation through it all just kept being people. It's people. You're telling a story about people's experience and people's goals and objectives and rationale. And I mean, just everything at the center is, if we focus on people, the story just kind of falls into place. And so I think that's what you were referencing, Dwayne, is that we sort of had this moment where we were like, yeah, it's certainly projects. It's certainly money. It's certainly all these things. But at the heart of it is people. And so if we come back to the Sentry example, I didn't reach out to Sentry. I reached out to people in Sentry until I found someone that could help me understand what to do. And if you step away from the idea that kind of mid-decision was when Sentry changed their license overall to business source license. So if you step away from who owns this project and, and what's the license and everything, there are people there who wanted to do the right thing. And everything else kind of fell away. And then we had this great outcome. I like the focus on people. One of the best podcasts I remember recording was actually with Justin for another podcast called Committee to Cloud Native with Kelsey Hightower, where basically Kelsey just talked over and over about people are all that really matter, which I totally agree with. I want to couch this report in a bit larger context. So this report is coming out of Indeed. Indeed is a very large company, which does a lot of great work connecting people with jobs. And I love that. And there are people at the company, a lot of developers who want to donate to open source. And so you set up FOSS Contributor Fund to enable them to have money come from Indeed towards open source projects. This is done through a democratic process where people vote on those individual projects. What this isn't is a large scale tax or something which goes from enterprise to dependencies. This is much more like a voluntary, we decided we want to give back to open source and here's how we did it. And if you are a large company, here's how you could do it too. There's a lot of questions that come after that for me. So I notice in the report that you say you're going to have another report coming where you're going to tackle more of the thorny problems. Like, uh, do we focus on people or projects? And does money help with open source? And how does it help exactly? And how does it affect governance? 
And how do you shift from writing checks to writing code? I love those questions and I wish they were in this report. I'm glad that you put them in the report, at least with a pin saying we're going to get to this later. So my first follow up to this long Richard talking bit is when is that report coming out and can we look at it? I want to speak to those questions for just one second. Those questions are one of my favorite parts of the report as well, because they came from a conversation that Dan and I had where he said those questions in quick succession. And so the way that you just said them, I've experienced Dwayne saying them as though like, oh, it's so excellent that we've gotten this for maybe. And now I'm going to just crack the world open and we've got to go so much further. So that's what I have to say about that. I think those questions open up a brand new path for us. And so I am incredibly excited about the potential of the second report. And I will let Duane speak to the logistics of the second report. I can't say my favorite part about the question, but a thing I like about the question is that we prefaced it with, here are some things we could cover in our next report. And so it's a balance of, there are topics that we really want to get into And we have not finished exploring some of those topics ourselves. So let's talk about timing. If you've done any writing, you understand that deadlines are useful, but usually not very often accurate indicators or predictors of when the work will be done. So the most honest answer is as soon as we get to a place that we're comfortable with the second report, absolutely. I am hopeful that we can get the second report finished in the Q3 timeframe in 2022. And that's very intentional. We want to have more material out there in the hands of people who do budget planning for their companies and for their open source program offices so that they can inform the decisions they make as they're setting budgets for next year. So I have some time set aside in Q2 to do a lot of the writing, but Mandy and I still have a very messy process to go through to kind of get to what it's going to be. And we just don't know what that looks like yet. I really do know some of the stuff I want to dig into, but yeah, we have more exploration to do and we have to kind of have some back and forth until we, it really starts to coalesce. But we're targeting, like, let's get this in the can so that we can have it in people's hands in time to do budget planning for this year. Excellent. Thank you. Sorry. As a journalist, I had to ask that question. Justin's always looking for an exclusive. So I'm always looking for like, give it to me now. Was that sufficiently helpful, but also vague? It was sufficiently political. Thank you. It goes to my next follow-up question. So you mentioned Q3 of next year. Q3 is a big word, meaning third quarter. That's a very like, I work at a large enterprise word. Now, you've been mentioned before on this podcast. You've been on this podcast twice, episodes 32 and 88. Those will both be linked in the show notes about the false responders thing, which was awesome. You've also been on this podcast, sort of, I think, in another episode with Justin Flory, where they talked about the principles of authentic participation. How do large enterprises authentically participate in open source? This is a really interesting question. When you said we're looking forward to talking about these questions, like there's no answer to any of the difficult things. How does money affect governance? Nobel Prize winners can't answer that question, and they've been trying. So, One of the questions I have, which is sort of a much watered down version, is for all those people out there who are working at SMEs, very small companies that don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars of discretionary budgets to throw away on open source. Can they use this report? Can they use the FOSS funds? Does this work for smaller organizations? Does it work for open source projects like an open collective that want to give back to their dependencies? The general question is, can you use this if you're not huge? And I say emphatically, yes. The core theme of the book 
is to not make these decisions in isolation, but to involve people in making decisions about who you support and how, and to spread that process around to as many people in your organization as possible. And there's a blueprint for it that lines up well to your large organization that has discretionary budget. But there are questions and, and topics that we get into in the book that are definitely useful to people in smaller organizations or who only have $100. You have $100 that you want to give to pass on down to one of your open source dependencies. You have three maintainers. You're probably already going to ask, hey, who do you think we should give it to? But in an organization where you might have 10 or 12 people, you might be tempted to make the decision yourself. And there's opportunities for you to get other people involved. Thank you. That was actually the real question. This is where people aren't huge. You have a whole other section in here called voter eligibility. I know a lot of our listeners aren't actually at large organizations or at small ones, but are actually just open source maintainers trying to figure out what sustainability means. Can you talk a bit about if I were just a coder, how would I make myself more eligible to be a recipient of such funds? I think you're asking a question from the maintainer side. You're asking if you run a project, how do I make it possible for larger organizations, for their organizations to help sustain me, to help give me funds? The biggest problem that I don't see us talk about enough when we're having this conversation is the fact that you are a single project in a sea of thousands that a company might depend on. Even small organizations, they're going to have hundreds and thousands of dependencies the deeper you dig into the chain. When you go past package level dependencies, when you start looking at infrastructure dependencies, you start looking at environments that you have to install in. There's a lot. And you putting up on your readme, here's how to support my project, that doesn't scale to hundreds and thousands of dependencies who also need to get that kind of support. One of the best unintended side effects of the GitHub Sponsors program is that we got a machine-readable file that helped us identify projects that were looking for funding so that you could look across hundreds and thousands of dependencies with code and say, here's everybody out of those dependencies who's even asking for money. Now, it gets complicated the deeper you dig into that because everybody's asking for different amounts. Everybody has different economic circumstances. Everybody has different geographic circumstances. Some people are maintainers of personal projects, but they're employed full-time to maintain other projects. It's really, really complicated. And so when we have sort of a surge in discussion about sustainability, the mantra, pay the maintainers with nothing but respect for my friends at Tidelift, like that's great in concept. It's hard at scale. I think Tidelift's doing an interesting uh, approach to that problem. But if you want to make your project more eligible to receive funding, understanding that there are hundreds and thousands of other people who are trying to do the same thing, and plugging yourself into as many of the automated processes that will enable people who run open source program offices to get visibility into who you are. That is one of the best things that you could do. Having something that people can give money to besides your PayPal address is critical. One of the great things that Open Collective has done has made it possible to add a single vendor into somebody's system. And now I can just pay it through Open Collective. I don't have to try to figure out how to pay ES link directly. Or I don't have to try to figure out how to send money to the Sheffield University in England like we had to do for one project. Open Collective is in the system. Great. We can make a payment to Open Collective. And centralizing the ability for people to make payments is helpful. And it's this tension. You don't want to over-centralize the ecosystem and create sort of these choke points or these critical dependencies on things. But at the same time, if I've got 
50 people or 50 dependencies that I can pay and 25 of them I can pay through one vendor and the other 25 I have to do one at a time, I'm probably going to pay the first 25 and look to see if maybe there's one or two really important people on the others because if you have to take them on one at a time, it's, it's really tough. I have a question down written before we even started this conversation and you touched on it slightly there. I was wondering whether you might want to talk a little bit more about some of the tooling that's mentioned in the report, because as far as I understand it, there are two tools I think that you've built as a result of the last kind of three years of experimentation. And I think they deal with pretty kind of piecemeal parts of the problem. And I wonder, is that something that you're going to continue to invest some time in? Is it something that you would encourage others to experiment with? Is it something that you're kind of looking for other members of this community that may want to use and kind of build them with you to get involved? Is that something that you're interested in at all? We talk about a few tools in the book. One of them is Starfish, which is a tool that we've released. It's open source. It can help you determine if someone at your company is eligible to participate around cost fund voting. We released a tool called Mariner that helps you identify if there are issues that you can contribute to in projects. I think there are some natural things that we can do to extend Mariner to also look at things like which projects have one of those machine-readable funding piles so that we and other organizations can look at those and say, hey, similar to what Back Your Sack has done, which didn't take this approach initially because there was no funding file when Back Your Sack was originally built. But I think there's opportunities there for us to extend those tools. We have some other tools that are internal. I hesitate to say proprietary. I really more think about them maybe not useful to release as open source tools, but our bias is always to release things that we think could be useful to other people who are on this sort of journey to, to find ways to sustain open source. I also want to ask about a, a tooling question, but the tooling question is more specific to the report itself, which is that you two seem to have struck up a really awesome friendship and to work really well together. Ben and I just finished, and we released it the day this was recorded, the 2021 report, which took freaking years to write and a huge ton of effort. And it was not easy. Both of us basically had forceps in the other's mouths. We were pulling teeth the whole time. And so that's a really weird metaphor and I apologize for it, but it was awful. How did you not kill each other, Mandy? And what was it like? When we finally released this report, I think I went on my social media. I like I linked to it and I said, find a writing partner and write. It's one of those things where we acknowledged up top that it was going to be messy and difficult and we set expectations with each other. Some of the expectations were really practical. Like I told Dwayne that I was going to give him constructive feedback, but I was also going to give him complimentary feedback and he was going to have to be able to handle both of those. And he told me the best way that he works. And so we set up scheduling like around him being able to like sit down with things for long periods of time. Some stuff was asynchronous. Some stuff was co-writing in real time. We definitely spent quite a bit of time though, making sure we understood each other's perspectives on the whole thing. And we kind of also checked, I don't want to say check egos at the door because that's not exactly right, but we understood our shared goal and that we were going to do anything and everything in our power to get there. And so any hurdle that we ran up against, and we certainly ran up against quite a few hurdles (laughs) 
I would be interested to see Joy talk about as well. But any hurdle we were up against, we were there supporting each other to get through it. What do you need? Do you need time? Do you need space? Do you want to do a thought exercise? Do you want to do a writing exercise? Do you want to tell each other stories? I mean, I've mentioned this several times, but at the heart of making this report as readable as it is, and I'm very not humble about the fact that it's very readable, like, and I'm very excited about that. But at the heart of that is that we rooted this in storytelling and mechanisms around storytelling. And so we could always go back to that. We would do all sorts of things, different types of exercises. One time we even had this two-hour-long conversation where we recorded it and we were just telling each other stories about stuff that was related to open source and going down rabbit holes and every which way. I think all that to say, we set expectations early. We knew the goal and we were always there supporting each other and also holding each other accountable, which was a big part of the process as well. There's something that I really want to emphasize here too, which is that we didn't sit down at the beginning of this exercise having not worked together before, expecting that we were going to be able to work effectively on this report. Mandy was actually one of the first people that I started working with when I came into it at a But we started maybe a year before this saying, I really want us to write something together. And she said, me too. I think that would be great. What is it? And we spent a year sort of bumbling around trying to figure out what it would be. And from the outside in, it probably looked to folks like Mandy and I just kind of hung out for an hour once a week and just sort of chit-chatted and, and weren't getting anything done. But that was all the process of building an understanding of each other, telling each other stories, building trust with each other so that she could give me the direct hard feedback that I needed to hear when things just weren't making sense. And that I could trust, put sort of the spaghetti ball of my thought out and know that she was going to understand where I was coming from. So her advice, finding a writing partner and write, I think there's two things in there to really carry away from it. A, writing is a thing. I would want to tweak Mandy's advice to find a writer and write something together. Because again, to the degree that it's understandable, has a narrative that the story is compelling, you have Mandy to thank for that. Anybody who's talked to me for any length of time does explode in a thousand directions. Sometimes can be hard to follow. But you also get to know each other, spend the time building the relationship with each other. Like we didn't become part of this writing process. We were friends coming into this writing process and had this bed of trust that everything else could rest on it. It was really important. If you want an example of that, when we were done with the book, we wrote each other's bios. And so any silliness you may pick up in the bios, those are part of an ongoing conversation of just being super comfortable with each other and knowing the perspective that each of us are coming from and the ability. I mean, you probably experienced this yourself in your writing of your report. It can be hard to say to someone, you're going to have to cut this section. It doesn't make sense. And I don't think it applies. And they've just told you they spent two days on this section. And you feel like a monster and you don't want to be a monster. But I never felt like a monster because Dwayne knew what I was telling him to cut that section or move this around or what he was saying the same thing to me when I was doing a portion of the writing and I was saying, I think we have to tell this part of the story here. And he's saying, 
well, I don't think you understand we've lost the thread here and, and this and this and that. You have to be able to have those conversations quickly and with trust. And you have to be able to move through those conversations without carrying them to the next part of the process. And let's talk about asking maintainers to write things because being a writer is a thing. Needing a good writing partner for that is, I think, really critical. And there are projects that have done a great job at their documentation, at creating these artifacts that people can consume either about the project or the process of contributing to the project, why you should adopt the project and everything else. And the maintainers that can do that and also be effective maintainers and brilliant coders, wow, they are really exceptional humans. For the rest of us, having the kind of support you need to produce those documents is really important. So I bring that up because I want to say two things. A, if you're a writer who wants to get involved in open source and you don't know how, this is your path. If this had been, Mandy, can you tidy up this documentation? This would not have worked. You can't approach it like that. Can you help me tell the story of this project? Find a writer. If you're a writer who can help someone tell the story about their project, like this is your opportunity to make those contributions. And for the rest of us, let's maybe temper our expectation of what we want maintainers to do when it comes to documenting things. It's not easy. If it was, it wouldn't be a whole specific domain, right? And end of show. Uh, No, but really, that's just really excellent. Thank you so much for sharing about how hard writing is, how you two have managed it. It sounds like be friends first and excellent people first and things will follow after, but also do a lot of elbow grease. I'm going to stop trying to wrap up what you two just so cogently, coherently and beautifully said, because that's just silly. This is not a forested area, but I feel like I've had lots of fire drink and philosophy. I said I wasn't going to wrap things up, but I just did anyway. Shoot. All right. Where can people find this report? Besides the show notes, obviously. If you go to opensource.indeed.com, it will redirect you onto the open source landing page. It is also in the FOSS Contributor Fund. GitHub repo is an easy place to find it. If you are members of O'Reilly's Safari Online, the content's available there. If you absolutely cannot find it for whatever reason, and Google is no help to you, email me or at me on Twitter or send me a message. I will send you a link to the report, but it is in as many places as we could get. Excellent. To at Dwayne on Twitter, you have to go to Dwayne O'Brien. That is twitter.com slash aluminium Bowie. That's spelled D-U-A-N-E-O-B-R-I-E-N. Mandy Grover is on Twitter at a Grover underscore indeed for indeed related things. And Mandy E, that's Mandy with a Y followed by an E, Grover at for fun Twitter for all the good stuff. So thank you so much, Dwayne and Mandy. It was excellent to have you on. But before you leave, we have to go to the other part of the show, the spotlight. Spotlight is where we highlight projects, people, things, cats, open source projects, what have you that have either helped us grow or made us smile or just need some love. Justin, I normally start with you. What is your spotlight today? Spotlight today is opensourcestories.org. My buddy, Samson Goody, was featured on a story. I haven't had the time to read it yet, but I will be doing that this weekend. So opensourcestories.org. Thank you. Ben Nichols? I want to cheat the system and do two shout outs. So number one, we're in December. It's the run up to Christmas. And I would be remiss if I did not mention 24 pull requests 
which is a passion project. Andrew, business partner of mine, known as TBAS. So this project is about contributing to open source. It's been going for many years. And after a couple of years of hiatus for obvious reasons, it's back. So go to 24poolrequest.com. And then as someone who has struggled with writing, has employed a writing coach at various points, I also wanted to point out there are a good bunch of people at the Good Docs project that are building templates for a good starting point for writing technical documentation for a project. But there's also a group of people there who are willing and able to participate in open source projects if they can have some impact using their skills as technical writers. So yeah, I also want to give a shout out to the Good Docs project. And I want to give a shout out to a mutual contact between Ben and I, which is John Hill. John Hill basically edited the entire report. And for all of you who weren't listening, editing means writing the whole thing while we just blabber at him just stupidly. So John Hill did an excellent job, a really awesome guy to work with. You can find him online at JPJ Hill on Twitter. And I'm pretty sure he's open for hire. If you're a tech person who needs a writer, just give him a shout. Maybe it'll work. John Hill is awesome. Mandy Grover, what is your spotlight today? So my spotlight's a little bit different coming in from a writer's perspective. And so I just wanted to spotlight some writing advice. Watch all movies. I know that sounds kind of silly, but there was a period of time during the writing of this report where I struggled with organization. And I just sat down and started watching Sunset Boulevard. I started watching All the President's Men. I started watching every David Lynch film ever made. Watch all movies. If you read closely enough, you will, yes, even Dune, if you read closely enough, you will find uh, Lynchian aspects in this report. I'm just kidding. But I say this because Dune is absolutely right and everyone knows this. Writing is hard and writing is a thing. But you can get started by recognizing the storytelling in your life, in your everyday life that you are exposed to constantly. And when I'm stuck as a writer, I just dig into movies because that's how we tell stories. It's archetypal. It's embedded in all of our modes of thinking. And so my spotlight is get Netflix, get Hulu, bust out your laser discs, give out them and watch movies. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dwayne O'Brien. I have been telling everyone I possibly can about this book. And so my spotlight is a novella called A Song for the Wild Built by author Becky Chambers. It's just shy, maybe just over 50,000 words. It's maybe 125 pages. It is a fiction book. It is about a monk and a robot. I don't think I'm doing any kind of spoilers there because it is called Book One in the Monk and Robot series. And it's that's got a picture of a monk and a robot on the cover. So. Spoiler alert, it's about a monk and a robot. And reading this book was like having someone really wonderful make a cup of tea for my soul. It was kind. It was sweet. It was just this moment that I really needed when I read it maybe a month ago or so. And in the middle of all that we're dealing with right now, I cannot recommend this book highly enough as a nice distraction for your brain and a wonderful story and something good to do for yourself. Thank you so much. That sounds wonderful. I will have to read that. I will look for Space Pug to be listed in the next report coming out of Indeed because 
If you watch David Lynch movies, clearly the pug should be there. Thank you, Mandy and Aluminium. It was wonderful having you both. And good luck in all your future endeavors. For anyone who is interested in learning more or commenting, you could always go to the Sustain Discourse at discourse.sustainoss.org, or you could just find Dwayne and Mandy on Twitter. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Thank you.